0: A second Bible reading comes from Psalm 95. Read along with me in um, the Pew Bible, which is on page 628 or on the screen behind me. Psalm chapter 95. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God the great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountains' peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands form the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if you hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. For forty years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest." This is the word of the Lord.
1: Before I start, can I thank you, Chris, for extending to me the honour of occupying your pulpit? Um, it's not something I take for granted, and I know that you have a duty before God to guard the pulpit and make sure that those who enter it speak faithfully from the word of God. So thank you for your confidence in me, and thank you for the privilege. I want us to look for a while this morning at Psalm 95, so if you could turn to that and keep it open, it would be good. We've all heard the expression, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and I think of that sometimes with a chuckle when I see someone that I think is really ugly and I say to myself, now there's a face that only a mother could love. And it's a real underlining of the fact that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. I'm sure you've all heard of Richard Dawkins. He's made his presence known and felt all over the world by his aggressive, uh, belligerent, atheistic opposition to Christianity. He's a professor at Oxford University. And he looks at the amazing and wonderful world that's around him with all its order and complexity, and he rightly concludes that it's absolutely absurd to claim that it all came into existence by blind, random chance. Because everywhere Richard Dawkins looks, he admits that he sees order instead of chaos, he sees purpose instead of aimless confusion. But that's as far as Richard Dawkins gets. His heart is hardened against any possibility that there might be a God, a great creative being who rules over the universe. So he looks and sees the evidence of God's existence but sees no God, no intelligent being. His heart won't let him see that. All he sees is a more sophisticated form of chance, which he calls selective chance, which to me is an oxymoron. Dawkins looks at the Bible and he reads of the activities of God in the affairs of men. He reads of the redemptive activity of God in the history of Israel. He reads of the protective care of God for his people, recorded in the Psalms. He reads of the sacrificial love of God for his people in the gospel accounts of Christ's death on the cross at Calvary. And this is what he sees. And I quote from page 31 of his book, The God Delusion. The God of the Old Testament, says Richard Dorgan's, is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser. A misogynist, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomachistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Here ends the quote from Richard Dawkins, and I reckon he must have got out of the source to find all those words. So Dawkins really gets it off the chair. He sees all the evidence of God and hates what he sees. And what a contrast between Richard Dawkins and his reaction and his view of the world and what we see from the psalmist here in Psalm 95. When we turn there, we see such a contrast with what these two men see in the world as they look around them. The psalmist looks and sees the same things that Richard Dawkins sees and his heart is filled with joy. He sees a wonderful world, a world of powerful order a world of purpose a world of intelligent design and he comes to the inescapable conclusion that there must be a god That what he sees around him is the work of god's mighty hands he can come to no other conclusion and he reads of god's affair, activities in the affairs of men and of israel and he sees the great god of verse three not the mythical selective chance that Richard Dawkins comes up with. And the psalmist is moved not to a vitriolic rant like Dawkins, but to worship. He sees a God who is absolutely marvellous. In verses 1 and 2, he reflects on God's redemptive activity. In verse 3 to 5, he reflects on the creative work of God in the natural world and in verses 6 and 7 he considers the gracious day-to-day pastoral care of God for his people. And his heart is full of adoration. His lips overflow with praise. praised to the glorious God and the great King. And no matter what angle he looks at things from, he sees this great god who cares for his people this great infinite desirable amazingly glorious god who is worthy of our adoration and praise and worship in all that god is in all that god does and in all that god commits permits he is altogether lovely in the eyes of the psalmist And every revelation God gives of Himself, whether in creation or through divine providence or through forgiving grace, strikes a chord of love and praise in the hearts of the psalmist and indeed of His people. So, the first thing we ought to learn from this psalm this morning in verse 1 is that God's people are urged to sing about God. But it's not to be a mindless singing. The psalmist has a joy that sings through pain and tears as well as through times of laughter and plenty. A joy based on what and who God is and what God does. And I think in this psalm we see the psalmist singing for three reasons. The first is because of God's salvation. We see that in verses 1 and 2. He sings... Because of God's pardoning grace. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of salvation. And let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. So the psalmist reflects quite rightly, first of all, on the redemptive activity of God. And we saw in the children's talk this morning that when God created people, He created us in his image and his likeness. He created us with spiritual awareness so that we could consciously adore him as no other creature can. And he created us in fellowship with him and with a song of praise and adoration on our lips. But we learn from the Bible and we know from the experience of our own hearts and lives that sin has brought disorder and rebellion of spirit. And the song of praise so natural on the lips of those who are at peace with God has ceased to come from the hearts of most of the people in the world. Because our natural hearts are hardened against God. We're told that in the New Testament book of Romans. Our natural hearts are so hardened against God that we will not even accept the evidence of our eyes and our senses that tell us there is a God. Our hearts are so hardened against God that we will not accept the logical conclusion of our minds that there must be some great creative being. And so there is no praise in our hearts to God. An old English-Scottish author and minister, Murdoch Campbell, in a book called From Grace to Glory, reflects on verses 1 and 2 of this psalm, and he says the following things. He draws to our attention that it is the Lord Jesus Christ that these verses are teaching us to praise, the rock of our salvation, that this is a song to the Lord of salvation, to Jesus, our rock, that this little baby that we love to talk about at Christmas lived a perfect life in fellowship with God the Father and died bearing the responsibility for our sin. I meet people who get very offended when I talk about the fact that we are sinful people, that they are flawed, sinful human beings. But every one of us has consciences that condemn us. Every one of us knows that we fall far short of the standards we set for ourselves, let alone the standards that other expectations that other people have and how much more the standards that God sets for us. We are sinful people who need a redeemer. We are sinful people who need to be rescued by God. And in spite of the fact that Jesus lived a perfect life and there was absolutely nothing about Jesus that God had any problems with. When Jesus died on the cross, in spite of that, he was subjected to the death of the rebellious, the sinful, the alienated from God. He bore the responsibility and the guilt of my sin. The things in me that offend God. The things in me that offend and fail other people. The things in me that make me ashamed. And so Christ shouldered the eternal spiritual responsibility for your life before God. For your rebellion. For your sinfulness. For your natural alienation and rebellion against God. And mine, of course. We're all in the same boat. And in doing that, Jesus brought about the redemption of those whose relationship with God is restored through complete reliance on what Christ has done on our behalf. As a young Christian, I was convinced that God would only love me if I was good enough as a Christian and I grew up in a church that taught me that we had to have an hour's quiet time every morning and it's a good thing to do by the way I'm not knocking it but it was so drummed into us that we had to start our day with a quiet time that if I did not I felt that God was angry with me all day long and I couldn't cope with that, I couldn't handle that And it was a long time before I understood that God places his love on us because of what Christ has done for us, not because of any potential he sees in us or not because of anything he knows about the future that will unfold later on. He sets his love on us because of Christ. And what he calls us to do is admit that we are sinful people who need his forgiveness and come to him and admit that we cannot put things right ourselves and acknowledge our desperate need of the gift that he has given us in Christ and put our trust and confidence that God will love us and make us part of his family completely on the basis of what Jesus has done for us. It took me a long time to learn that as a young person wanting to be a Christian and it's taken me a lifetime to live consistently with that understanding. Because everything in me wants God to respect me, wants God to admire me, wants God to reward me for my good behaviour. But grace is not about reward. Grace is about forgiveness. Grace is about acceptance in spite of what I am. And what God has poured on me is not a reward, but grace. And I am so grateful. So the meaning of the gospel, says Murdoch Campbell, is that God can recreate within us and provide provide us with a new song. A sweeter, nobler song than Adam could ever sing sing in his state of innocence. A sweeter song, a nobler song, a greater song, a more heartfelt song than the angels gathered around the throne of God can ever sing because they live in a state of sinless innocence. They cannot sing the song of the redeemed. But we are different. We are different. We've been sinful from our birth. We've been flawed and tainted by sin from the day we left our mother's wombs. But those of us who are Christians have been redeemed, we have been rescued, we have been born anew, we have been recreated, bought with a price, the sacrificial death of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And we can sing the song of redemption. And if you don't know what the song of redemption sounds like, I think Stuart Townend did a great job in reminding us how deep the Father's love for us How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The father turns his face away, as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. And ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. So I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. That's the song of the redeemed. That's the song of redemption, acknowledging the absolute grace and mercy of God poured out on us in Jesus Christ. And while ever we live on this earth, we will never be able to sing the song of innocence. But what a joy it is to be able to sing the song of the redeemed, to rejoice in the fact that God loves me in spite of what I am. What an amazing thing that is. What an incredible demonstration of God's love and grace. And my heart aches for you this morning if you do not belong to the group who can sing that song of redemption. And my prayer for you this morning is that you will belong to those who can sing quite honestly and sincerely, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. And so the psalmist's heart sings with praise to God because Jesus Christ was sent to save him from his sin. But the psalmist also rejoices in verses 3 to 5 in the creative work and power of God. He sings because of God's providing providence. And this salvation that the psalmist calls us to give thanks to God for is the very heart and soul, the very foundation, the beginning and the end of our relationship with God. And so that new relationship that we have with God leads to a new view of everything around us, a new view of the universe, a new view of our world, a new view of history, a new view of what's happening in the world around us. And the world is no longer a terrifying place because we have a God who loves us. We have a God who is working everything together for good, according to his purpose, for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Richard Dawkins' problem is not that there is no God, as he's so desperate to prove and ridicule everybody who does believe in him. And Richard Dawkins' problem is not that there is no evidence for the existence of God. Richard Dawkins' problem is that he cannot sing the song of redemption. His problem is that he sees this world and this world's history through the eyes of someone who is not redeemed, who doesn't know the love of God in his heart, who doesn't know the softening work of the Holy Spirit. And so he sees no God revealing beauty because beauty is indeed in the eyes of the beholder. But what a difference for this psalmist and what a difference for us. What a difference for you and me when we put our trust and faith in Jesus Christ as our Saviour and our Lord. Through the eyes of faith we see a universe, a world, a creation that echoes day and night with the praises of God. And we can sing with Stuart Hine, O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the works your hands have made, when I see the stars and hear the rolling thunder, your power throughout the universe displayed, then sings my soul, my Saviour God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. And his heart sings because God is in control of everything. And God has his destiny in his hands. But the psalmist also sings because of God's loving pastoral care as our shepherd. In verses 6 and 7, he sings because of God's pastoral care. Come, let us bow down in worship and let us kneel before the Lord God our maker, for he is our God. We are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. And because we are the redeemed, we too, like the psalmist, can rejoice in God's love for us and revel in the confidence that we have that God does love us, that God will never forsake us, that God will never leave us, that God is in control of every single circumstance that comes into our lives. Nothing happens by selective chance but by the will and purpose of God and God's will and purpose for me And for you, if your trust and faith is in Jesus Christ, is to do you good and not to harm you. And so we can rejoice in the... that God is intimately and deeply involved in our day-to-day lives, that we have the miracle of God's presence with us in all that we do, and it's there for all to see. And what the Dawkinses of this world see... Only as fortuitous chance as they're tossed about on the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, we know by faith as the loving providential care of God. And so, if you are in Christ, you are God's recreated being, and God has made a commitment to love you and to never forsake you and to never let anything take you away from that love. The Lord is our shepherd. And we, unthinking and helpless and restlessly wandering as we are, are his sheep. Don't let fear and feebleness of faith, don't let disobedience and lack of submission to God hold you back from a life lived powerfully for God. Rejoice, as the psalmist calls us to rejoice. Rejoice in the love and power of the shepherd who looks after us and cares for us and knows every detail of our lives. And let our hearts sing as the psalmist's hearts sing because God cares about us every moment of every day. And the psalmist finishes in verses 8 to 11 with a plea to make this song our own. He sings because he wants us to be at peace with God. today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said, there are people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest." So the psalmist looks back to the 40 years when Israel wandered in the wilderness because of their disobedience and rebellion against God. And he pleads with those who read this psalm not to harden their hearts against God, not to make shipwreck of their lives in the way that that generation of Israelites did, in the way that Richard Dawkins is doing in his defiant, angry rantings against God and God's people. God calls us to come to him with soft hearts, with hearts that own up and acknowledge their rebellion and their sinfulness and plead with God for mercy. And let me close again with the words that we sang a little while ago from Richard Buse's hymn. Let today be the day when you hear him. May our hearts not be hard or cold, lest we stray from the Lord in rebellion, as his people did in days of old. My prayer for you and my heartache for you is that you will know the reality and the truth of the things that we've reflected on this morning. That when you look at the world around you, you won't see blind, selective, evolutionary chance, but a God who is powerful, a God who is in control of all things, a God who is a God of incredible grace and love, and may he dwell richly in your life now and forever. Let's pray. Lord God, we are very conscious that we are no better than Richard Dawkins. In fact, Richard Dawkins is probably a better person than I am and possibly than other people here. Father, we know that we are sinful creatures, we know that we are flawed, we know that we disappoint ourselves and others and deeply disappoint you and offend you in so many ways just about every day that we live. Father, we thank you for your mercy and grace that, sinful and flawed as we are, you have loved us. And ugly as we might be, and perhaps we have faces that only a father could love, yet our father does love those ugly lives and faces. And so we thank you so much for the mercy and the grace that you have poured out on us in Christ. We thank you that he was willing to come and die on the cross and take the responsibility and the guilt for our sins, even though it would be thousands of years before we would even be born. We thank you, Father, that by your grace and mercy you have come and looked for us and searched us out. And when we had no love for you, no thought for you, you loved us and you brought us under the influence of the gospel and of Christian people and the sound of solid biblical teaching so that we became aware of our sinfulness and our need and we became aware of the grace of Jesus Christ and for all that he has accomplished. And you have brought us by faith and the work of your Holy Spirit to put our trust and faith in him. We thank you so much for this incredible miracle of grace. And we thank you in the name of our Lord Jesus, our Saviour and Lord, our Redeemer. Amen.